Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of self-improvement, systems, and society. My guest today is Packy McCormick. Packy is a resident of Brooklyn, New York, and my peer in the Rite of Passage Fellowship. He is also the founder of the Not Boring Club, a roaming social club for people who never stop learning. In this episode, Packy and I go behind the scenes on the Rite of Passage Fellowship. We discuss Senius, the topic of Packy's essay, we talk about the magic of Twitter and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Packy, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So I know you've been splitting your time between a couple different places. Where are you today? I am in Brooklyn, New York right now. Okay. Is that home? Uh, Brooklyn, New York is home. So I've been between here my wife's parents' house uh, when we need to get a little bit of space and then uh, down at the Jersey Shore. Nice. That's That sounds pretty sweet. What part of the shore? Uh, Avalon, New Jersey. So I grew up outside of Philadelphia and that's kind of where everybody uh, from Philly goes. I actually, for the first, uh, for a few years when I moved to New York, uh, ran a party bus company between New York and Avalon because so many Philly people moved to New York and want to get back to Avalon for the summer. Wow, what a cool idea. <laughs> that sounds like it fun. It was so much fun. I didn't get liability insurance or anything. It was probably really dumb and I got really lucky that, <laughs> it, <laughs> that it worked out, but it was a blast. Nice. Good stuff. So I, I know a lot of people are leaving New York. What do you plan to do? A lot of people are talking about leaving New York. I think you might be, right? Yeah, I, I got rid of my place in White Plains. I moved up to Connecticut. Yeah, so I, I think we're here for for the long run. Our lease expires at the end of June, um, so we'll probably take a few months of a few glorious rent free months, uh, just kind of bop between our our parents' places. Um, but I think that we'll be back for sure. I yeah. love New York too much. My wife loves New York too much. I'm from Philly. She's from Jersey, so it's you know it's a big city close to both of our families, and it's the best. Coming back yesterday from from her parents' place, just driving into the city and seeing that view of all the buildings and then getting into the city. And even though it's a little bit eerie right now and Canal Street is empty, which is super bizarre for a Sunday, um, you know, there's nothing like this place. So I think, I think we'll be here for a while. Hopefully real estate prices come down a little bit. That would be, that would be one positive here, but otherwise we're, we're, we're good. It seems like they will. I mean, I don't, this is just like anecdotal, but I've seen a lot of people talking about leaving and like I myself have left. Um, it, it seems like they're going to come down. I think they will. I think so. I mean, I think we're, I have this theory working that like you see predictions of what will happen overall in like the shortest possible term transaction you can make. So you're seeing like New York City Airbnb prices get hit, whereas prices right outside of the city are increasing and demand is increasing. You'll see it next in rentals and then finally in in home sales. Um, so I, I think probably the rental market will make sense for the next year. I think people will just need to, to move inventory. But I do think that because this weird uh, kind of separation of the economy and the stock market that's going on right now, where the economy is obviously feeling a lot of pain, but the stock market's not in terrible shape. Mm. A lot of the people who own the types of places that that we'd be looking at, like which is anything in New York, are invested in the stock market, probably haven't been hurt too much and probably are not panic selling yet. I think it'll take a while for those prices to to catch up. Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that yeah, that makes sense. 
makes sense. So you had coronavirus, right? I had coronavirus. What was I that like? Early. It was. It was actually more frustrating than anything else. Um, frustrating, and then also, you know, because I'm in this tiny apartment with my with my wife, a little bit scary. Uh, yeah. you know, that that I don't want to give it to her. But otherwise, it was mostly just frustrating because I didn't have it too bad. The biggest kind of symptom for me uh, was just I felt absolutely exhausted, and in particular, like my brain felt absolutely exhausted. So like a lot of what I'm doing right now is writing and thinking. So to have that just like totally shut off and not be able to do anything, I guess on the one hand, it was kind of nice because I don't turn it off right now. Yeah. Um, but on the other, like you know, I hadn't missed a, an edition of my newsletter for the past year. And then I did, I was, you know, three days late when I had, uh, had coronavirus and I was trying, but I just like could not form thoughts or sentences. Um, so that part was tough. And then otherwise it was just, you know, a fever. If I tried to breathe really deeply, I couldn't. Um, and then I guess the other, the other thing, which was I had two nights of the wildest night sweats I've ever had oh, in my life. Like when people say I woke up in a pool of sweat, I thought it was hyperbolic until this, like I woke up in like, <laughs> like an inch of water it was insane that's kind of nasty <laughs> but it's nice to be nice to be on the other side of it now I mean, i'm still wearing a mask and being careful washing my right, hands and all right. that but um it is certainly nice to at least know what it feels like and know how my body reacts to it yeah yeah well if the worst thing that happened was you were three days late on your newsletter i think you did pretty good with it <laughs> it's not too bad i feel fortunate <laughs> So you wrote an excellent essay called Conjuring Seniors, um, and this was part of the the Rite of Passage Fellowship that I was in as well. Um, I, look, I got to be honest, man, your your essay was excellent. It's it's the best one that's come out of the Thank group you. so far. Um, Whoa! It was it was a pleasure to read. It was what was cool is that it, it was a total novel idea to me at least, but I think to a lot of people. And you know, like I wrote about compulsory service. Oshan wrote about UBI. Uh, Susan wrote about city building and Walt Disney. None of those things are like particularly novel. They're interesting, but I don't think they're that novel. Yours was a totally new concept to me. And then you did a great job of weaving in these examples and stories and, and different anecdotes and stuff like that to like really keep it flowing and keep my attention the whole time. And to do that for 12,000 words, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a testament to your, your writing ability and the topic that you picked. So, so good on you, man. That's, that's that's awesome. Great essay. Thank you. Well, first of all, I really appreciate it. Second, I do not think it's the best essay that's come out. I thought yours was incredible. Um, you know, I, I thought uh, Susan's and Oshan's were fantastic. They kept me they kept me interested. I think there is. I think as we have this conversation, I'm happy to dive into seniors, but I also think it's interesting for us to talk about just the writing process and what it was like to to write these things. And I thought mine pretty much the whole time was the absolute worst essay. And even when I hit publish, I thought that was like, not just the worst essay in the group, it was a really talented group of people. And so if it was the worst in that group, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But like maybe the worst thing that I've ever written. And so like finally, by the end, I got to a, a spot that I felt really comfortable and happy with it. But for most of the, the Rite of Passage Fellowship, I felt awful about the quality of the essay. I don't know why, I just like could not get myself to bring it together. You and I both worked with the same editor, Tom White. Without Tom, this essay is not even close to uh, as good as it ended up being. I think he really helped. It's, it's a wide ranging topic. There's so many examples from 
thousands of years of history. So to be able to wrangle that into something that's coherent and reads, and to your point, stays interesting for 12,000 words was a real challenge. And I had never worked with an editor before. I think without having done that on this piece, there's no way this essay maybe gets done. I don't know if I would have felt good enough to even hit publish on it. Yeah, so I, it was. I, I totally, ahead. I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I'd never worked with an editor either. And like you said, Tom was just fantastic because like when you're trying to write something that's 10 or 12 or 15,000 words, it's like you don't just sit down and write it. You have to write it in pieces, right? So I had all the pieces put together but when I got it to Tom, they were in the wrong order. They didn't make sense. They didn't flow. My my transitions were just basically non-existent. <laughs> so like th- to have somebody who can look at it from an outside perspective and be like, "This is where you need to go," and then he would he would challenge my ideas. But there were certain things where I was like, "No, this this is going to stay like this, and I want it like that." And he totally let that be. So like we had a great back and forth. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you were maybe thinking that yours was so terrible because of the the process you started writing it through, right? Like, can you talk about that process a little bit? Yeah. So the process that, I mean, I think we kind of went through a similar process here, but it was the longest and most structured writing process I've ever been a part of. And I would imagine the same, the same is true with you. Normally when I write now, I, I this morning wrote 3,400 words for um, a newsletter. And I did that in like two or three days. And so I start writing. I have my brother look at it one time to kind of see if it makes any sense at all or what needs mm-hmm. to be changed. But it's pretty quick and dirty. And it's it's something that I'm really interested in at the time. And if it's not perfect, then it's not perfect. This one was interesting because we you know, started out with an idea that we then committed to for four months. And so I'd never worked on something for that long uh, from, from a writing perspective. So that was kind of thing one. And then from there, really the process of kind of outlining, writing a little piece, going back and outlining again, filling in sections of the outline, and then to your point, trying to fit those sections together in a coherent way. That was one interesting thing. And then I added on top of that, this layer of difficulty where I built a group called the Metasenius, where in the first 1500 word essay we released, I put out a call for people who are interested in the topic, interested in how groups work together, interested in the history of genius, interested in uh, the role that place plays in in genius and and all of those things. And so I had a 12-person Slack group going where people were super, super smart, super, super helpful, sending ideas, sending articles as they came up. And so take the normal process that I have where I'm already overwhelmed by all of the potential information in this big topic and then multiply that by 12 because everything that I read made me rethink the way that I was structuring the whole essay because it was also fascinating to me that I would read something about you know the way that the Dungeon family worked together, Wu-Tang Clan, and then be like, is this more interesting to the modern audience than talking about ancient Greece? And then I would go back and uh, decide if I, I needed to replace ancient Greece with something more modern. And so every time I took in new information, my filter, I guess, was not strong enough to to say like, nope, this is the core of what I'm writing about. This is interesting, but it doesn't fit. Everything I tried to bring in, everything I heard, I tried to bring in and figure out how to incorporate into the essay, which is another reason that it was super important to work with somebody like like Tom. Yeah, I think so. the The learning process here was interesting because. 
like you're talking about the, the paradigm you have when you're writing like a, just a couple thousand word piece is I don't need to be an expert on this. I'm interested in it. I know a little bit about it. Let me let me put it out here and see what people think. But for me, at least beginning this fellowship, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this piece that could be the thing that people look to on this topic. Like I should know what the hell I'm talking about. And when I started, <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And totally. by, by the time that, that I was nearly finished with the first draft, I still felt like I didn't know what the hell that I was talking about. So like I knew a lot more than probably the average person did. But like you said, every time you come across a new piece of information, you rethink what you're doing and you're questioning that what you've written the first time is accurate and like is a nuanced view of the topic, right? So I think what was important here was dialing in and saying like, okay, yeah, this is more detailed than a couple thousand word piece and I should know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to understand the topic as well as somebody who has spent their career doing this or has written a book on it or something. So it's like this in between, you know, a long, a short form and a book. So it it messes with your head is what I'm getting at. I think. It's so good to hear you say that. Uh, And I think that's one of the things about writing in general is that you think all of these things are unique to you and happening in your own head. And it's really how everybody feels. I remember taking the first writing passage course that I was like, Oh, everyone's going to think this is stupid and they're going to judge me for writing and they're going to whatever. And then you go into a breakout room with the other people in the course and everybody has the same fear. And I think I had the exact fear that you had here. I mean, you're, you were writing about a topic that someone as smart as Pete Buttigieg was super interested in. And I was writing about a topic that Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison and Bernd Hobart and like all these people who just objectively are multiples smarter than I am have spent much more time on than I have. So it, I, I heard about the idea at first a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, uh, from a guy named Andy Matuchik, who's maybe the smartest person I've ever had a conversation with. And so to like have those people interested in the topic and and focused on studying it and focus on how progress works and all of that, and then to come in from from uh, you know a, a place of having only heard the term seniors a year ago and try to write a, a twelve thousand word essay on it, the imposter syndrome on that was super real. But I think that the thing that helps you get over it is that particularly with something as, as rich as this topic, just being able to pull together all of the good stuff that's been written and pull together all of the historical examples and, and, and form it into a coherent narrative, you'll at least add something new to the conversation, even if this is not going to be the piece that everybody refers to when they think about how progress works from now until the end of time. It is, uh, I think, an interesting contribution to the conversation, and hopefully it makes people think. But I think you're right. You have to lower your expectations of what what your essay is going to be. Even if this were a 90,000-word published book, a bunch of people would read it. They'd be interested about it for a while, uh, interested in it for a while, and then you know go read something else and, and forget about it. So I think we definitely put more pressure on ourselves than the reading public would put on us for the quality of the work. For sure, yeah. But I think that quality is why we've been able to publish some things that are actually pretty good and have gotten some traction and that kind of stuff. You know, I think you have to have that high bar to begin with and then continuously fall short of that high bar. <laughs> but um, Good. Well, if that's what it is, then I've been doing a really good job. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I'm falling short all the time. <laughs> exactly. So I think we need to jump back a little bit and, and talk about what Senius is, because I know this was a foreign concept for me, and it probably is for a lot of people. So can you just kind of like 
explain what the idea is and then maybe illustrate it through one of the examples that you wrote about? Sure. So Cenius is this idea that was, uh, the term was coined about 12 years ago by a guy named Brian Eno, who's a music theorist and just one of those people who's like thinking about the future and thinking about the way the world, the world works in a just totally different, different way. And so he came up with the idea of Cenius uh, to mean essentially the, the communal genius or the genius of a scene. And so if you think back, I, I think cited 13 examples uh, throughout the, the essay from ancient Greece up to Silicon Valley and everything in between, they can be big, they can be small. But the thing about Cenius to me is, as I understand it, is that it's a community of people working on either one big problem or an interrelated series of problems. And it could be anything from how art evolves in, in uh, Renaissance Florence to uh, how we use technology in Silicon Valley. It has to be generative and creative. So a group of people coming together and talking about the works of others is really interesting. And it's a fun group to be a part of. It's not a senius because they're not creating something new. Uh, and then I think all of the examples uh, that I that I wrote about had in common that they're then foundational for the next the next generation. So if you go back to to Renaissance Florence, the use of perspective in art kind of changed the way that future artists then created art. So it's not just a group of people doing this weird new thing that nobody then uses again. Mm. It becomes foundational. Ancient Greece is foundational in geometry, philosophy, meta, like all these things that, that you then build on top of. And so to, to be one of the 13 that I included, they had to be uh, both generative and, and novel. So I think one of the, the best examples of seniors and one that, that's resonated the most with people uh, is the example of Motown. Late 1950s, early 1960s, Barry Gordy starts this record label from a two-story house in suburban Detroit. Wow. Um, and in this house are eight of, I believe, eight of the top uh artists of all time, according to Billboard. You have uh, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, The Supremes. Uh, Neil Young was somehow involved in, no in Motown. So like all of these people. And what you realize is that it's not just this coincidence that you have a bunch of talented people in one spot. These people are coming to this house. Like They'll have an idea for a song. They'll pop in a room and Marvin Gaye sitting there on the piano and they'll play it together and they'll record it and they'll... they'll uh, sharpen each other and they'll take one early draft of the song and turn it into something great. Uh, the, the thing that caught me, and so I, I kind of was alerted to the seniors of Motown when I watched an incredible documentary on Showtime um, that we can put, I guess, in the show notes or whatever, yeah, which, sure. uh, a link to it. But as they walked through what made Motown so special, it was like taking off a list of the requirements for seniors. So for example, one of the ingredients that I found in most of the historical examples that I looked at was the role of competition. Barry Gordy set up his executive team meetings such that you'd come in, you'd bring an idea, and then everybody would dump on it. And it was it was this like real process of like only the best song that we have going right now is going to get out, and you have to bring it. And you have to come to this meeting and argue why your song is the song that we need to be promoting. And there's no hard feelings. People are going to be attacking each other's kind of work and ideas, and that's fine. The, the group still loves and supports each other, but they're all in it to produce kind of the best the best work. And so, you know, you have songs that are now classics that started out in their first iteration getting, getting poo-pooed in this meeting, and then they have to go back and rework it, maybe bring in another collaborator on it. 
and sharpen it until you get to a point where you have these these kind of classic songs that everybody knows and loves. Another uh, example of, of one of the ingredients of genius is the diversity of thought and experience. And so this Motown was born in the midst of the civil rights movement. It was mainly black artists led by Barry Gordy. It was a black man uh, in a time when a lot of the artists couldn't even use the bathrooms or have a meal in some of the places that they performed. Mm. And so you think, you know, if we're, we're doing this thing uh, for and by black people, we're going to keep this tight and it's just going to be a bunch of black men doing this together and changing the world. Barry Gordy uh, was super intentional about uh, diversity in, in Motown. And so that expressed itself in a few different ways. His executive team and the people in the leadership positions were men, women, black, white, at a time when most executive teams were one, a bunch of men, most were white, and three, in the case of Motown, Barry Gordy actually caught a lot of heat for bringing in white people to the team when it was this label that was for and of black people and by black people. Uh, but he brought in a sales guy named, named Barney Ailes because he knew that in order to get Motown's music played on as many radio stations as possible in the country, he needed to guide the people at the record labels, many of whom were, you know, in, in the deep south of the middle of the country, mm. who weren't used to doing business with black people. They needed someone they could feel comfortable with uh, to to play the music and, and someone who could convince them to play to play black music at a time when they really didn't. Sure. And so Barry Gordy was smart about recognizing that you need a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different skills and can get access to a bunch of different places in order for the idea or for the music in this case to to get its full viewing uh, from the general public. So Motown, watching the documentary, there's like nine more examples of things that that are seen as place-based ritual, the fact that they were in his house, the fact that you could pop in and out and then collaborate at any time. Like there's all these things that uh, are hallmarks of seniors that Motown either intentionally in many cases or accidentally in some cases brought together. Yeah, that, that that's, that's cool. Um, I know one of the things that you write about in the essay is how Kevin Kelly kind of back when this, this term seniors was coined, he lays out four essentially pillars of seniors, right? And my impression was that he also basically said like, these things exist here, but you can't create it. The best that you can do is like not fuck it up once it happens, right? And yep. I, I think from reading your essay, you argue that that's not really the case and you add in some other pillars that um, if you're trying to create seniors, you'll have a better chance if you can add all of these things in. So can you talk a little bit about his pillars and then the pillars that you add in and, and whether or not you necessarily need to have all of those things or if a, a combination of them We'll kind of get the job sure there. yeah so i think if brian you know coined the term seniors kevin kelly uh who's the founder and editor of wired and just a, a leading voice in in kind of tech writing um he really brought the idea of seniors to the public um and so he came up with four pillars looking back at historical examples um that are present in kind of any example of seniors and, and nurture seniors so they're uh mutual appreciation so the people in the group need to support and appreciate and applaud and, and push each other. The rapid exchange of tools and techniques. So if you're if you're at in Motown, for example, and somebody's doing some cool thing with a mixer, everybody in the 
group is going to know about how to do that. And so that's just going to be the new baseline. Uh, so it's, it's changing all the, the technical tips, tips uh, of the trade, exchanging those so that everybody uh, kind of is at, at the cutting edge of what's going on in that industry. Network effects of success. So one person's success brings up the other. So Silicon Valley is a prime example of network effects of success. It's, I guess, most prominent in the idea of, of mafias. People are talking about the Uber mafia and the Airbnb mafia now where people make a lot of money off of one company and then they go back and they invest in the next generation. So one group success is good for the whole, the whole scene. Um, and then the local tolerance for the novelties. So you have to be kind of in the supporting group that, that enables you to push the boundaries. A lot of times when you're trying something new and trying to change the way that something uh, that's always been done a certain way is done, you're going to get pushed back and things are going to fail and you're going to seem like a failure for a little while. So you need a group of people there saying like, no, 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 keep going, keep pushing. We see what you're doing. We appreciate what you're doing. Keep pushing it. Loved that article. Then he gets to the end and he says, uh, essentially, you said it best. Like when you see seedings happening, don't fuck it up. Don't put it in uh, an expensive office building. Don't bring in the lawyers and accountants. Just like let this magical thing happen because it's a magical little thing that happens so rarely. A big part of the essay was to say like, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think if you look back at at Senia in the past, like certainly you can find those four uh, ingredients and everything, and and maybe you can't tell that somebody had from the beginning set out to try Senia. I think he talks about the fact that people have tried to recreate Silicon Valley in a bunch of different places, and mm. for the most part, it doesn't really work. It, it requires this kind of like magical stew of different things in addition to the four things that he talks about. A big part of the essay though is I think we're in a spot right now where that magical stew is happening. I think COVID ends up being um, a piece of this, the, ends up being kind of one of the conditions uh, required to then go create something new. And, and by that, I mean, we're in the midst of this time where so much is changing. We're meeting on Zoom. We're stuck in our houses. People need to work together across industries and countries to find a cure, to, to figure out ways to get food to people. And like, you're essentially starting with a tabula rasa and saying like, the world is a completely, completely different right now. How do we build from here? Mm. Um, and so I think that that sets the stage for groups coming together uh, in new ways to create new things. And so. What I wanted to do was say, like, cool, if you have communities who are now coming out of this and working on new ways to meet, to create art, to collaborate, even things like this that seem as stupid as all of those Google Sheets going around where people are like building malls in Google Sheets or building clubs in Google Sheets, like they're a new form of, of either art or expression or gathering that is a novelty for sure. Like when you talk about local dollars, so the novelty is they're a new thing. It might end up being nothing, but it might end up being something. So if you take these little communities that are forming right now, what what would you add to them to give them the best chance of succeeding? I think sure. Kelly and I agree that like you can't just say there is going to be a seniors and like watch the seniors happen. But I do think you can catch things way before they become a seniors, add some ingredients in and give them a better chance of becoming both generative and influential over the long term. And so the four that that uh, I came up with in addition to his four are emergence from catastrophe, which is what we're in the middle of right now, but looking back throughout history, 
most of the senior, the 13 senior that, that I said in the essay, I think 11 of them directly followed some catastrophic event from the bubonic plague to World War One to World War Two. Out of World War Two, uh, you had Bell Labs, which was formed, uh, which was formed and contributed to to the war effort. You had Building Twenty at MIT, which did the same thing. You can trace a direct line from them to Silicon Valley. Um, but I think because of the reasons that I talked about, that you get this blank slate, you get people kind of forgetting about their differences and coming together to solve a problem that's bigger than themselves. And I know that's something in, in your essay as well. And yeah. one of the reasons that that you're a fan of compulsory national service is there's something magical. Jonathan Haidt calls it the the hive switch when people kind of forget themselves as individuals and come together to work as a larger group. And catastrophe is is a breeding ground for that. I mean, the, the canonical example uh, for our generation, at least, is thinking about America post 9-11 and the days following 9-11 when people who never would have talked previously were hugging in the streets and crying in each other's arms and supporting each other and like kind of just like fist pumping that we're all Americans together. Right. That's the kind of thing that happens in catastrophe. I know you're a huge Morgan Housel fan. I thought his essay on it comparing uh, our current situation to World War II and the way that the people uh, kind of came together as one nation then um, and now are coming together as one nation, one globe, obviously with, with some, uh, some political battles thrown in the mix, but it gives us opportunity for people to come together. So one is emergence from catastrophe. Two is competition. Uh, I actually had one of, uh, one of the people in the medicine, yes, my good friend, Mike Madonna wrote a big chunk of this section talking about uh, the battle between Leonardo and Michelangelo. Uh, oh, yeah. in in Renaissance Florence, and that this really interesting thing happened where art became kind of more mathematical during the Renaissance. There's this book, Della Pintura, um, that, that really gave uh, artists new tools for thinking about perspective and, and made art a more objective thing. Objectivity opened the door for kind of competition because you could actually judge like, Hey, this piece is good. This piece is not good. Um, and that spurred a lot of the innovation that took place during the Renaissance. There was one scene that we talk about where Leonardo and Michelangelo were given commissions for these two huge walls in a building in Florence directly across from each other. And so it was this big, like, this is, you know, this is the LeBron Jordan debate in real time in ancient <laughs> Florence the two heavyweights in in art at the time painting directly across from each other to say, to see who's the best and not only does that push the two of them but it inspires this whole new generation of artists who see wow like these people are celebrities now like if i become an artist i could be a celebrity i'm gonna look at what they do and look now they've done it i'm gonna do better than them i'm gonna build on top of what they've done so competition i think spurs this uh, the best gets the best out of people, but then also inspires the the next generation. Um, real real quick, Peggy. Yeah. I think so. What you talk about the hive switch from from Jonathan Haidt? I think I, I just finished that book, The Righteous Mind. So this section kind of jumped out at me. And what he says about the hive switch is that, um, in addition to like this emergence from catastrophe kind of thing, where people really bond with one another, another thing that creates unity is healthy competition because he says that competition uh, increases the love of the in-group more than it increases the dislike 
of the outgroup. So it's like when you create competition, there's a huge net positive here. So I thought that was just like a super interesting connection and an overlap of these two um, elements that, that you bring in. So I just wanted to throw that in there quickly. That is a really, that's a really good point. And I think all of these things are connected uh, in to some extent. Um, they all kind of are, are things that, that contribute to the strength of a group. Cause I think that's what's needed for people to really feel comfortable enough with each other to push the boundaries and create great things together. But sure. that's, that's such a good point. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, like, I'm incredibly close with Philadelphia Eagles fans I've never met, but if I saw them walking down the street wearing an Eagles jersey, like there's that, you know, the fact that we're all on this one side of the competition and it's, and it's fun. I think sports are this, I've come to appreciate, I think probably because we don't have sports right now, I've come to appreciate how important sports are for so many reasons. And they are this like really great outlet where you can feel this bond with, with a group of people in this really low stakes way, right? You're talking about what team is able to run into an end zone more or, <laughs> you know, who can put a ball in a basket more. It's this low stake thing, but it brings groups of people together in a really, uh, really healthy way. Um, and I think that's one of the things too, with compulsory national service. He talks about the fact that, you know, one of the ways to, to turn on the hype switch is getting everybody to march together, uh, in sync and you just feel like you're part of this this unit in the army versus this one person or right. going to a, a club is another one where you're all dancing to the same beat but yeah i think there's the high switch is one of the more fascinating co- concepts that i've read about in the last the last year or so um yeah so the third the third ingredient place-based ritual um which is this idea that if you look at all of these examples of seeing this, like the Inklings uh, in Oxford were the writing group that that J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were were a part of, they would meet at a bar uh, every, I believe it was Tuesday morning uh, and, and exchange notes on the things that they were writing. And, and Tolkien credits the Inklings as a group, those meetings, and then C.S. Lewis in particular with enabling him to write the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He said he would not have been able to do it without that group of people. But there was something that, and I think, you know, we probably feel in a little way in Rite of Passage, there's something about knowing that at a particular time, you're going to have to come together with the group and you're going to have to bring something. And so both having the place, and for us, that happens to be Zoom. For them, it happens to be the Eagle and Child Tavern. For Ben Franklin's Junto, it was a bar in Philadelphia where they would meet. Um, and then throughout history, there's an example of kind of a place and a time that these groups came together. Um, but I think it's really important to know that you're going to be showing up and you're going to have to have done something. Um, a lot of these places end up, a lot of the, the kind of scenes of seniors end up being bars. And I think it's, it's really interesting that bars enable people from different backgrounds and different levels to come together in this neutral ground. If you're in an office, the CEO is clearly the number one person. There is a real kind of defined structure of who's allowed to contribute what. If you're at a bar and you're having a couple of drinks, everybody can throw in their ideas and people are kind of on more equal footing. So I think it's the combination of of that informal place and then the ritual of knowing that you have to come and bring something to the group at a particular time. Uh, that has enabled enabled these groups to, to work together and, and produce. I, I think what's also really interesting about that and rite of passage in particular is that 
you're getting together a group of people who have a common interest. Like for us, it was writing, write a passage, right? And that, that's very, it's very high level, but it's important because everybody is there for the same reason. So we go through this five or six week online thing, and then we have these in-person meetups. And when we have the in-person meetups, it's that kind of place-based ritual like you're talking about. So everybody's there under the the pre- prerequisite of, of being interested in writing and having a blog or sending a newsletter or whatever. And that breaks down some barriers. So you and I first met at, I think the only time we've met in person was at a meetup in New York City that was a rite of passage meetup. And we spent probably at least an hour talking about, you know, the Not Boring Club and, and Senius and your idea for the essay. And another guy who we spoke with that night, um, his name is Peter Kang. And he is the founder and, and co-partner of this this digital agency called Barrel. And he's he's probably like at least 10 years older than me. So he's somebody who like professionally is quite separate from where I am in my career. And like you were saying, you know, the CEO in the office is, is up here and the, the associate is down here and you're not really going to interact. But when you have this, this prerequisite interest that brings people together, those barriers come down. And a great example of that is the three of us spent an hour or so talking that night. And we, we talked about real estate because we each have investment properties and we talked about investing and we talked about our, our different ideas. And from that conversation, um, we've all built relationships. Now, now Peter and I have started this kind of like investing team that we're working together on. We're, we brought in another one of my friends who's interested in the same thing. So we're collaborating, build this, this investment, this investment strategy that we're all executing together. And then, then you and I, went through the the fellowship together and, and worked on our essays together. And now here we're working on this podcast together. So this place-based ritual with the prerequisite of a common interest is so, so powerful. Yeah, I could, I could, we could do a six hour podcast on, on this topic alone. So this is where I think uh, not boring club ties in. So, so interestingly, so um, I've been working to, to start um a community of people who actually aren't united by a particular uh, prerequisite interest. And so there are a, a bunch of communities that are like rite of passage or like countless others. The number one advice you get when you're starting a community is like pick a niche, pick something that everybody is super interested in and build it that way. I poo-pooed that idea. I was like, look, I think you can find smart, curious people who are interested in a bunch of things. And if you bring them together in place-based ritual, we have debate club or philosophy club or writing club. They could be people from all different backgrounds who can get interested in little topics, but don't need to be united by one particular thing. I think in person, that's true. I think online, the nichier you can get, the better. If you, you know, I'm in a, a group of business newsletter writers, and it's the most active group that I'm in online because it's a very particular thing. Um, that we're all interested in. I think the wider the interest base goes, the more physical place is incredibly important. So to your point, when we are on a rite of passage call, we're talking about writing. When we meet in person, the conversation gets a lot wider ranging and and the conversation just flows to different things. I think more naturally than, than it can online. Online is almost for now and this will change at some point, but it's structured. We have a block of time on our calendar. We're here to talk about this one thing and like we'll do this thing and then we'll probably hop off the Zoom. Maybe we'll talk for a few minutes, but it doesn't spark that same kind of 
the same kind of genesis of of new ideas and new tangents that I think in person is is particularly well suited for. Um, and so that's one of the things, one of the questions that I wanted to explore here was like, can you create a senius that's purely online? And I think if you were to do that, it would have to be incredibly niche. Sure. But I do think that the combination of in-person and online is probably going to be the most powerful. So I talked about two examples. One is Rite of Passage, which I think you described well, that it's online most of the time, and then the bonds are strengthened uh, in person. And then I talked about this group, the Inner and the Left, uh, run by a woman, Anagat, which is essentially like this community globally of public intellectuals, really built on the, the idea of these in-person salons that she hosted in cities from Brussels to San Francisco to New York to Mumbai, uh, where people can come together, have drinks, and have those kind of informal conversations that spark new ideas. Right now, everything is online only, but I think that combination of being able to connect and have really good focus time more often than you'd be able to otherwise, because it's so easy to connect online and talk about writing or talk about progress or talk about whatever the specific thing is, combined with in-person meetings where you can let new ideas flow and then kind of let your guard down a little bit. I think that's the magical combination for now. Sure. Yeah. So I'd like to change direction a little bit and talk about Clayton Dorge. So I saw that you gave him a nod in the acknowledgements of your essay. Um, how did you two end up meeting and collaborating? So here's, I mean, this is, I guess, the online genius. Twitter is an incredible place. I have only really gotten into it in the past year, but um, we just met on Twitter. He, he read the newsletter, uh, reached out, um, said that he was interested in the idea of genius. I think he read the original essay. And it's, I mean, you had never heard of the term a year ago. I had never heard of the term. So whenever I find somebody who's interested in genius, I jump on it. And so I asked him to to read a draft of the essay. He gave really helpful comments. Uh, and it's it's good to your point earlier, when you know that there are these people who are experts and have thought of something a lot more than you have, being able to get somebody like that to, to read the essay and just kind of confirm that at least that wasn't totally off base was really comforting. Right. Do you know anything about the Good People Summit? No. Oh, man. See, Clayton is way too modest. He created this event called the Good People Summit, and it was the, the inaugural cohort or, or event was about three months ago now. And this was a thing that spawned from he and his wife do like this annual extended weekend where they, they go away for the weekend and they work on their, their goals and what they want to accomplish for the next year. They do some writing, that kind of stuff. And they decided that it would be fun to bring together this group of people who is interested in kind of doing the same thing. So, and his background is in event planning. So he handpicked 12 people who he knew from different places. Like he'd worked with this guy in I think New Mexico and had friends from college and friends from high school and, and people from I think mission trips, whatever. So he got this group of 12 people who none of them knew each other, but they all knew him. And then he rented this Airbnb in Colorado everybody flew into Colorado and he organized everything. So like you paid the price, you showed up and you didn't worry about anything. He had a chef there preparing their meals. He had like conversation prompts and activities planned, but the, the overarching purpose of the event was to come with an idea, a thing that you want to work on, whether it was a business plan or a book or, 
or poetry or photography or whatever, everybody had something that they were interested in, but didn't really have time to do it with their professional lives. So they set aside this four days to have a summit and meet with these creative people and, and really hone in and focus on this thing that you wanted to accomplish. So he, he did that. And it was about, I think it was about 12 weeks ago now. And one of the guys who came to the event was, I don't know what the relationship was, but he was a friend and he had been working on this secret thing that he had accomplished without telling anyone about it. I don't even know what the thing is because Clayton wouldn't tell me when we were on the podcast because the only people who know about this were the 12 people who were at this event. But anyway, this guy accomplished this thing in secret, no social media posts, no conversations, no nothing. And then he comes to the Good People Summit and tells them, I've done this thing. I want to write a book about how I did it and how I did it in secret. So at the summit, he puts together this plan to write 500 words a day, Monday through Friday for 12 weeks. And at the end of those 12 weeks, he'll have 30,000 words and he'll have this rough draft of a book, right? So Clayton and I recorded a podcast last week, like on Thursday or something. He told me this story and he said he finished it a week early. He's got his 30,000 words 11 weeks in and now he's like, so I guess I have to publish this book now. So Clayton put together this event that will ultimately result in this book being published. And who knows, like, could it be a bestseller? Maybe could this guy like go on to be an author? And when he does, he's going to uplift everybody else in the group through his status, right? So like we're checking totally. some of the, the boxes of, of seniors here that, that you laid out. And when he told, so I knew about this um, a couple months ago, I think, because he and I had connected. And when I heard about it, I was like, that is so similar to what Packy's doing. And I just find it to be so positive and optimistic and inspiring that two people from different sides of the country are basically working on very similar things to create and generate and push society forward independent of each other. But now you guys know each other and now you're kind of working together. So it's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the internet is a wild place. And I think it's, you know, the fact that that magic happens in a place in Colorado is is a point for the side of in, in person. So I think we're really fortunate to be at this time where, like, we're right in the middle of these two things happening where place based is still super important, but the internet is also an incredible way to meet people, keep relationships kind of warm and, and going, uh, you know, build new ones. Yeah, I think we're we're incredibly fortunate to be living at this time where in person is still super valuable, and I think people appreciate that right now more than ever. I cannot wait to get out to a bar with my friends or yeah. to to rent a house in the mountains somewhere, like all of those things that we can't do right now. But the internet is also an incredibly magical place that you know I could be connected to you through an online writing course and to Clayton through Twitter, and now the three of us know each other and, and can look out for each other and support each other. Like that's that's unbelievably cool. And I, I feel incredibly lucky that we're all, you know, living through this time. I do too. Yeah. I mean, the, the power of Twitter is just, it's tremendous. It's, it's really cool. Um, it's insane. So packet kind of like to wrap it up here, but I just want to, again, congratulate you on your essay. It's, it's awesome. And before we totally finish up, I'd like to jump through some kind of rapid fire, Tim Ferriss esque questions. Woo. So I've got a list here. So if nothing comes to mind, we'll just pass on to the next one. But number one, what book have you given most as a gift? Oh, man, this one's tough. 
the art of racing in the rain. Yes. Yeah, this one. yeah man. <laughs> There's like, I mean, you're, I'm not going to win like any intellectual prizes for this one. It just is such a feel good book. And I thought the use of the dog as the narrator it was just such a great trick. And it was like, it's maybe my favorite narrator in any book that I've ever read is this golden retriever. Uh, so yeah, that's my answer. The art of racing in the rain. That's, that's an amazing book. And the ending is just what makes it so good. Like if you have, if people haven't read it, go out, buy it, read it. And here, I'll endorse it even more. So I recommended it to my girlfriend. She likes to read. She loved the book. She recommended it to her brother, who I've never seen pick up a book. And he read the whole thing and loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of book. Like, you just can't help but smile throughout it. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great. All right. What purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life? That's a really good question that I don't have a great answer for I love notebooks. So I'd say like, you know, anytime, anytime that I'm able to get my hands on a good notebook, it's normally less than a hundred dollar purchase, but it gives you, it gives me at least this like blank space to think. And there's just something that, you know, having a notebook that's half written in is great. Having something that's totally fresh is like, Oh man, I better come up with something really great to put on this first page. So the idea of a fresh notebook, I think is normally a hundred dollars well less than $100 very well spent. I love that answer. Do you have any particular brand that you prefer? Um so there's two. Um there's one that I bought in Japan uh called Campus. Um and it's just like really nice to write on. I got it in an apartment store in Japan. They sell them on Amazon as well. Um but that's kind of like my just day to day. I'll I'll write longer form stuff in it. I have just like a shitty little one for yeah. little notes, but if I want to write just like a random, you know, plan or something, I'll do it in that. And then uh, some a woman that I used to work with and her husband, uh, Nick and Christine, run a, a company called Morel, which makes these like beautifully designed uh, notebooks with with Japanese paper and mm. um, just like really cool kind of like block lettering on their stationery. It's just like a really nice brand, M A U R E L E dot com. Um, but that is my new favorite notebook brand. Awesome. I'll link to that in the show notes and I'll pick up one for myself because that sounds pretty cool. Nice. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? This one's easy. This one's writing for sure. Um, and you know, I've been doing it now for just over a year. Um, took the, the first Rite of Passage cohort and it's been such a cool way to one, just like keep my brain exercised. Two, it totally changes the way that I interact with what I consume. I think one of the reasons that I wanted to start writing was that I was always reading either books or articles or whatever, and it would go in one ear and out the other, and you know, just on to the next thing. Writing about it forces you to one kind of pause and think about what you just read, but then also think about how it fits into all of the other things that you're reading and thinking about. So for me, it's just a great way to kind of collect my thoughts, but it's also been a fantastic way to connect with people. I've been doing the newsletter for a year and it's sparked new relationships. It's deepened relationships with friends that I had, but I didn't know were necessarily interested in the same things that I was. And so, you know, it, the cool thing about writing about what you're interested in is that you just find other people who are interested in the same things and want to talk about those things. So writing for sure. It's a very cool thing. My answer would be probably word for word exactly what you just said like at, at the the 
consuming things, but not doing anything with them and wanting to do something with them. That was my primary reason for starting. And then my reason for continuing is like meeting cool people. It's like, it's before starting writing online, you have no idea the power and the enjoyment you can get out of it. But holy shit, man, it, it is awesome. Everybody should do it. It's incredible. And I, I wrote about this today. So I always don't like repeating what I just wrote, but nobody's going to, the overlap here is going to be small. Um, I'm seeing more and more people who had really good jobs doing a bunch of different things, either quit those jobs or spend a lot more time on the side starting to to write uh, and create newsletters. I think we're just kind of at the beginning of what what this next wave of writing is going to look like. Yeah, so the the progress you've seen with your newsletter is super cool. And I know you, you wrote, I think, last week that you want to see if you can turn it into like a source of income. So that'll be really, really fun to watch that grow and develop. And just based on your track record in the last few months, I, I think you have uh, quite a road ahead of you there. I appreciate it. It's, it's been fun putting out statements like that, like that I want to be able to pay my rent with with writing. And before that, it was I want to hit a thousand subscribers when like I was growing it, you know, 30 subscribers a month. I was like, next two months, I want to hit a thousand. And then it happened. And then, you know, like my first thousand took three or my first 500 took 313 days. And I just did my third 500 in 20 days. And so like, just by saying that I want these things to happen, it seems like, you know, it's not like the, the secret or magic happening. It's that I think the the people who read it kind of resonate with that and are willing to share and, and all of that. So it's been really cool to see that like, yeah, there's, there's uh, some traction happening and it's mostly just because like people are generally good and more appreciative of the fact that you're like putting yourself out there and writing than you'd expect. I was petrified of putting my writing out there in the beginning and that people have proven me wrong uh, for that fear over and over again. It's a very cool thing. What advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to graduate? I'm going to do the same thing here. I mean, there's, there's two. One is just an extension of what we just talked about, which is write and start writing early. There's a guy who was in my right at passage cohort, Sid Ja, who's just graduating from college now. And we were talking and he's like, yeah, I feel bad when I think about the fact that like, you know, I don't have quite as many subscribers as you do, or like looking at bigger people, like nowhere near but I have 10 years on you people. Like I'm going to catch up and have have like way more subscribers than I don't have your age. And so one, I think that's, that's, but a huge thing to start when you're young, like anything compounding, start saving money and investing and writing and anything that compounds over time, start doing now. Um, and then two is when you start your first job, just be the hardest working person in the office for at least the first three months. Like your, your reputation for the rest of your time in that job, certainly, but then really for the rest of your career is kind of set in how hard you work in those first three months. And how much value you add. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I, I would give a very similar version of that advice as well. So uh, great answers. Packy, where can people connect with you, find out more about you, read your work, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I'm uh, on Twitter at Packy M, P A C K Y M. Uh, and then my newsletter is not boring, not boring.substack.com. Awesome. Everybody needs to go sign up and they need to read your Conjuring Seniors essay because it'll open your mind and give you something to think about. And it's, it's a real treat to read. So Packy, thanks for coming on today, man. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 
Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.